0: You no know, next month on July 31st uh, my wife Amy and I will celebrate 15 years of marriage together you know and you know, in 15 years of living together with one person, you you can learn a lot about that person. And one of the things that Amy has learned about me is that I suffer from this thing that I like to call selective hearing disorder. Now, uh, some of you know what that is, because you suffer from the same thing, you know. But here's what selective hearing disorder is, you know. In reality, your ears work just fine. You can hear everything crystal clear, but for some reason, sometimes, your brain chooses to selectively not hear things that are being said to you and uh, I, I, it happens to me all the time it actually happened this week uh, I, it was at the end of the day I came in I'd been out that day for work had some meetings and I remember walking in the door on Wednesday and man it's just that classic end of the day moment you know I've got my my bag that has my computer and stuff in it on, on one arm I've got the coffee mug from my car on the other hand I've I've been to the to the mailbox and I've got the mail in the other hand and I walk in and then I've got a four-year-old kind of hanging off of my ankle and all this kind of chaos is ensuing as I walk into the house and I've got my hands full and I'm putting stuff down. And in the middle of all of that, I can hear a voice, like I, and I think it's Amy's voice, and I know she's saying something, but for whatever reason, the, what she's saying is not quite sticking in my brain. It's not registering. It's like just out here going in one ear, out the other, and I'm not hearing a thing she's saying. Finally, get all the stuff put down, and I'm at the sink washing my hands, and I say, I say, Amy, what do we have for dinner tonight? And if you have selective hearing disorder, then you know this moment, it's the worst. Because I say, What do we have for dinner? And she looks at me with this look, she's like Are you serious? Like, did you not hear what I just said to you? And I realized immediately that that voice I heard, oh, that was Amy, and she was actually filling me in on how our evening was going to go, including what was for dinner. And I start looking around, and right there in front of my eyes, there's all these clues as to what we're having for dinner because it's right there on the stove, it's on the counter, and it's like, man, what a dumb question, you know? Like, oh, I'm sorry, Amy, I'm sorry, I don't listen when you talk. But, you know, it's like sometimes that moment if you've ever experienced that, it's like, man, there there can be a voice that is speaking, but when there's so much happening out here, it's so hard to really grab onto that voice and let it really sink into your mind and to your heart. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I know spiritually, so in some ways, it feels like I, I've been experiencing that for the last few weeks. I, I feel like I've wanted to hear from God, I've wanted to feel close to God, I've wanted to know intimacy with God, and yet, regardless of how much time I've spent here in the Word, or how much time I've spent praying, it just feels like God's elusive. It feels like I can't quite let His voice come all the way in. I was sharing that with some friends this week, and I had several people just respond, like, man, I have felt the same way. It's been hard for me to hear God. It feels like a dry season that I've been in. And you know, if that's where you are, maybe some of you, you've been in that place where it feels like you can't hear from God, maybe you've noticed, man, there are a few distractions going on in the world right now. And there's a lot going on in the world around us. And sometimes it's hard to take hold of and hear what it is God has for us in the midst of all the distractions. and so. Whether you identify with that or maybe you're in a place where you are connecting with God regularly, I believe Psalm 60 has something to say to all of us. So let's look at Psalm 60. We're going to read it all the way through, uh, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll kind of go back and walk through it a little bit at a time. So starting in verse 1, this is King David, and he says, You have rejected us, God. You've burst upon us. You've been angry. Now restore us. You've shaken the land and torn it open. Will you mend its fractures, for it is quaking? You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Save us. Help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, on Edom I toss my sandal, and over Philistia I shout in triumph, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, God, you who have now rejected us and no longer go out with our armies, give us aid against the enemy, for human help is worthless? With God, we will gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. This is the word of the Lord from Psalm 60 given through uh, God's servant David. Now, if we're honest, Psalm 60, this you know we read through that, and this kind of feels like one of those Psalms that, man, you read it, and you just kind of check it off, like, man, that was weird. I don't know what just happened there. I'm not coming back to that one anytime soon. All these random cities and places, what is happening? But I, I believe there's something special that God's doing in Psalm 60 through David, and we, I think this is applicable, and Understandable, when you go back and you look at the introduction to the psalm, you know, before verse one of of many of the psalms, there's these words in italics. And a lot of times we skip right over those, they don't even get a verse number in the English Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, those italic words are actually verse one, and our verse one is verse two. And and a lot of those introductions are just kind of, um, they're instructions to the worship leader because remember the Psalms, they are poems. They're songs and lyrics. And so there would be special instructions. And so if you look at the italics in Psalm 60, above verse one, you know, it says, for the director of music, to the tune of the lily of the covenant. And that would be like if I wrote a song and I was like, hey, Will, play this song. You can play it to the tune of Jesus Loves Me. And that's how we're gonna move through this, you know? And then the next part, it says, a mictam for David. I don't know what a mictam is, we're gonna go past that. The next part though, look what it says for teaching. For teaching. In other words, David is going, hey, this psalm that I've written, this is a worship song, but it is not just for worship. It is also for teaching. It's not just a worship song. It is a teaching song. And David is saying there's something in here, although what he's writing about is an experience unique to his life, there's something that he experienced that he believes that is useful for the teaching of all of God's people throughout all generations. There are only two Psalms that have that phrase at the beginning and this is one of them. And so there's something here for us. And we're gonna walk through the Psalm and what you're gonna see is kind of this pattern that goes through. We're gonna start where where David identifies a problem and then David is gonna pray and then he's gonna hear the promises and then he's gonna hear the plan. And so that's how we're gonna walk through it. We're gonna start with the problem. David right out of the gate is kind of just telling God, "Hey, God, you need to know what's going on in the world." As if God doesn't know, this is what David's like. Hey, I'm going to let you know, God. Look, he says, he says, "You've rejected us, God. You've burst upon us." He says, "The earth is shaking, God. You're shaking the land. It's being ripped apart, God. You've you've shown us desperate times. You've given us wine that makes us stagger." You see, we know historically what David was going through in this time. You can read about it in, in 2 Samuel 8 or in 1 Chronicles 18, but basically what has happened, David has just come to the throne, and he has kind of inherited a kingdom from the king before him, King Saul, that is just at war on every side. Like on every border of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, there is war breaking out, and David has to spend the first several years uh, as the king going out and fighting battles to secure the, ba- the, the borders of Israel. And at this particular moment, David has gone to the northeast part of the kingdom and he's waging war along the Euphrates River only to receive word that the Edomites have invaded from the south. And he's left exposed. And it is in this moment of desperation, you can imagine being a king or a general fighting a war on one front only to hear that the other front is being taken. And it's in this moment that David cries out, God, what are you doing, God? You've rejected us, you've shaken us. And the language that David used here paints a picture he says, God, what's happening is there is an external crisis. He said, you, It feels like you've rejected us. It feels like the world is shaking and you're ripping it apart. There's an external crisis that's unfolding. But then he begins to paint a picture of what it feels like on the inside. He said, You've given us wine that makes us stagger. God hadn't literally gotten David drunk on wine. What David is explaining is, God, there's an external crisis and it is resulting in internal confusion. And that, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that before, where there's an external crisis. If you've been alive and breathing in 2020, then I have a feeling you know exactly what this feels like. It's like, man. I mean, you just go back to the beginning of the year. Look at what I mean. If you live in Nashville, it's like, man. It started with these these tornadoes that went through our city and just ravaged our city, and then. Not long after that, our city gets shut down because we're, oh, a global pandemic. There's a virus that's spreading all around. And then not long after that, you may have even forgotten about this, there was like a, a record-breaking power outages in our city where 130,000 people were without power for like five days. And then and then it's like after that, our eyes have been drawn to the systemic racism that's been rampant in our nation for centuries. You know, it's like, we're like, oh, what is happening? And then there's riots and protests and civil unrest and all these things. And then out on top of that, it's an election year and we gotta figure out who to put in the White House at the end of the year, oh my goodness. It's like external crisis. In the middle of it, if you're anything like me, internal confusion. I mean, we didn't even get into this personal stuff that's probably happening in a lot of your lives. Mm -hmm. Many of us are facing unemployment. You have friends or families that have gotten sick. Some of you know those who have died because of the pandemic. Some of you are facing financial hardship, and in the middle of all this, it's like, man, knowing what to do next, you can feel really stuck. It's an external crisis with internal confusion. But I love what happens here because David, he just blatantly says the problem to God. You know, a lot of us, we don't know we can do that. You don't know you can just tell God, be honest with God about what's going on. I mean, listen to how clear David is. He's like, God, you've rejected us. Where are you? But here's, here's, how, here's how David moves on. He doesn't just stick with the problem and moves into prayer. And guys, this is the difference between complaint and biblical lament. You see, if we're not careful, when we start to name the problem, we can sometimes just 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 uh, spiral down into complaint and get stuck in the first three verses of this psalm. But David keeps moving. He goes from the problem to prayer. Look at verse five. He cries out to God, he says, save us, help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. The language here is so different. David starts the Psalm going, God, you've rejected us. And then in verse five, he says, save those that you love. In other words, David says, God, I feel this, but this is what I know to be true. God, I feel that you've rejected me, but God, I know we are your beloved. You know, David's appeal here to God is not on the basis of what he thinks he deserves. It's on the basis of what God has offered. God has said, hey, you are my beloved. I love you, I see you, I know you. And this is what David appeals to God on. Will you deliver those who love you? And guys, this is our prayer in the middle of our world shaking. We go, God, we know, we trust, we believe that we are your beloved, but we don't feel it. Would you move? Would you deliver us? And this is David's prayer, the prayer of his heart. Now, what happens next in the Psalm feels really confusing to us because, you know, verses six through eight, It says God answers. God has spoken from his sanctuary, and then God starts talking, and it sounds as though he's like flipped to the back of your Bible, and he's like reading a bunch of cities off a random map in the Old Testament time, and we're tempted just to move right past it. But God is saying something here, and and something that, that we don't understand, but David would have understood very clearly. God begins by saying this. He says, in triumph, I will parcel out Shechem. Now, we don't know what Shechem is, but David would have known. Shechem was the place in Genesis chapter 12 where God first came to a man named Abram. Abram was in his 90s with a wife who'd never had any children and God said to him, hey Abram, I am going to make your family into a great nation. God spoke a promise at Shechem to Abram and it's almost like God is looking at David and going, hey, you remember that promise? Remember that promise I made to Abram centuries ago? Like, remember that promise? Now you're sitting as king over that nation that I brought to fruition because of that promise. He's pointing to his faithfulness. He keeps going. He says, "He says I'll parcel out Shechem. I'll measure off the valley of Succoth." Now again, we have no idea where that is or what that is, but see, Succoth was the place where Jacob, who was the grandson of Abram, it was the first piece of the promised land that he would take possession of after living as a servant to his uncle Laban. And so Jacob steps in as God's going, "Hey, remember that promise I made to Abram? Remember when Jacob stepped in and he started to fulfill that promise by taking hold of this land?" And then he keeps going with Gilead. He says, Gilead literally means hill of testimony. And so God is saying, hey, listen, I promised I was faithful. You know, Jacob took hold of this land. I'm testifying to you now, David, about who my character is, what I am like, that I am faithful. And then he keeps going beyond Gilead. He gets to Manasseh and Ephraim. Now again, if if you know the story of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim, they are tribes of Israel, but more specifically, they are the sons of a guy named Joseph. Now Joseph is a significant figure in the history of Israel. Joseph was a picture of what God can do in the face of mass crisis. You see, Joseph was the kid that was sold by his older brothers into slavery, taken down to Egypt where he rose in the ranks after being put in jail to being second only to Pharaoh. And then years later, when a worldwide famine would hit, his family would come, the family of Jacob would come and find relief for the famine. You see, Joseph is a picture that, man, even when we can't see it, when it feels like the world is falling apart, whether through famine or or pandemic or anything else, that God is at work, just like he was through Joseph. And he says, Manasseh, Ephraim, then my favorite is Judah. You know, you get to verse eight, maybe you get to verse seven, and he says, Judah is my scepter. Guys, this language, it is alluding directly to a prophecy from Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, you see Judah was another one of the sons of Jacob. And in Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob looks at Judah and listen to this prophecy. <laughs> he says, "The scepter, scepter is a signal of ruling, of kingship. He says, "The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his." Guys, this is a prophecy that he's saying, hey, out of the tribe of Judah is going to come a king from whom the scepter will never depart, a king to whom all nations will come and give their obedience, a king that will be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Guys, this is a direct prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God with us. So you see, in these answers that God is giving, he's not just reading from an atlas and giving random geographical places. He's going, guys, all these places, these are a picture of my faithfulness. I've made promises and I keep my promises and I'm not done working. I love this. And and then just to, to cap it all off, God starts naming off the countries that are at war with David. He says, hey, you know all that pressure you feel on every side? He said, let me tell you how I feel about the pressure that feels like it's gonna overwhelm you right now. He says, oh man, Moab, Moab's like my kitchen sink. It's my, I could take it out and put it in a new one if I wanted to. He said, Edom is like the place where I chuck my shoes when I walk in the house at the end of the day. It's nothing. He says, over Philistia, I will shout in triumph. And guys, I think God looks at us right now and he's not insensitive to what we're experiencing, but he goes, guys, I see what you're experiencing and what you need to know is that I stand in dominion over coronavirus, I stand in dominion over injustice. I stand in dominion over division. I stand in authority. I have it all and I'm still in control and I know where this thing is going. These things feel huge to you, but God is in control and he knows what he's doing. And we move beyond the promise. Sometimes we want it to go uh, problem, prayer, God, just give me your plan. Tell me what you're gonna do. But God says, no, here's here's the problem, I hear you. Here's the prayer, I hear you. Here's my promises, so you know I'm faithful. Now let me tell you about the plan. And so after God lays out the promises in verse nine, David says this, he says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Guys, this question, this is, whether we know it or not, this is the question that all of us are asking. This is the longing of every human heart. You see, the fortified city is a picture of security, of stability, of peace, fortified city for David was Jerusalem, where he had walls on every side and the enemies could not get in. For us, the fortified city is this picture that we see fulfilled in Revelation 21, where there's a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that comes down and goes, we will finally know the peace of God, where He wipes every tear and there is no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain, because God is the king on the throne over all of humanity. This is what we long for and what David asks is who will bring us there? It's a question of hope. Where do we find our hope? I love it, David keeps on going. He says, is it not you, God? He says, you who right now have rejected us. He's having to remind his soul, even though I feel like you've rejected me, God, it's you. And look at verse 11, he says, give us aid against the enemy. All those things pressing in, he says, for human help is worthless. With God, we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. God, where, where do we find our hope, guys? Where is our hope found? You know, if we're not careful, the world will offer out all kinds of things to try to give us hope. And I'm just going to tell you very, 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 like, you has got to know, like, guys, our hope, our hope is not in a vaccine. Our hope is not in a scientist figuring out how to beat this thing. Our hope is not in police reform. Even though these things would all be good, that's not where our eternal hope comes from. Our hope is not in getting someone new in the White House or keeping the same person in the White House or whatever way it is you lean. That's not where our hope is. Our hope has to be bigger than that, beyond that. See, our hope comes in God alone and the promises that he's made. In this whole thing, what he's saying is, guys, I want you to know just like I promised to come and I did, he says, I have promised to come again and I will come and I am going to make all things new. This is the promise of Jesus. And this is where our hope lies. It's where we find our hope. Now, I want to be really clear. Sometimes there's this false dichotomy that we can kind of set up in the middle of this. You know, we hear this sermon, oh, the world's shaking, we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes we hear this thing that goes, oh yeah, just trust in Jesus. Doesn't matter what you do, you just got to keep trusting. Guys, that's not a true dichotomy. David is calling our eyes to fix them on Jesus, to remind us that he's the king, but there's still something to be done. We find the clue in the middle of this all the way back in verse four of this psalm. See, sometimes the psalmists don't write linearly the way we do, they write as poetry, so it's flowing, and in verse four, listen to what David writes. He says, but for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Man, this is beautiful language, guys. You know, in a battle when the banner goes up, it's this symbol to signify to the warriors that hey, there is victory on the other side, keep going. The banner is a rallying cry that in the middle of the chaos of what's breaking on around you, it can rise up above the chaos so you can see that victory is in reach. And guys, this language of being raised up, again, for the the Israelite person, for the Hebrew who reads this, it's going to call to mind a specific story, a really strange story in Numbers 21, where there's these snakes amongst the Israelites and they're biting them and they're dying. And God tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on a stick and lift it up. And he says, anybody who looks at the serpent will be saved. And it's this thing that happens. And so they hear the banner being raised up. Immediately, they're imagining the serpent, Moses, raising up this serpent. Man, there's hope. God is going to heal our nation. But guys, the picture of a banner being raised goes much further than that for us who are followers of Jesus. You see, in John chapter 3, Jesus himself is going to allude to that strange story. And this is what he says. He says, no one's ever gone into heaven except for the one who came from heaven. He's the one who came, the ruler from the tribe of Judah, the son of man. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be raised up. There's that banner language, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Guys, this is our hope. That Christ has gone ahead of us. He came into the world. He suffered just like we're experiencing suffering and then He rose above it, victorious over death, conquering the cross through the empty tomb. And He's the banner that's risen above the chaos that's all around us so we can fix our eyes on Him and knowing He's at work. Now here's what matters is that when the banner goes up, the warriors don't stop fighting. They don't just go, oh, the banner's up, we're done. No, they fight with renewed vigor. Hey guys, we fix our eyes on Jesus because He's won the victory and it gives us courage and strength to keep going. It gives us hope we are not losing the battle. God is not losing the battle. He's not finished. He's still working. He's given us the promise. He promised Christ would come and He came. He entered into our suffering. He beat it and He's going to come again. There's hope, guys. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. So this morning, you know, as we get ready to take communion, this serves as a renewal point, to be renewed in our battle against the chaos that is waging around us. But we don't fight it on our own strength. We fight it with our eyes on Jesus who was raised up. We fight it with our eyes on Jesus who's coming back. He's gonna bring the fortified city so that we can know peace with no end. And so as you take communion this morning, I wanna encourage you to get the bread and get the cup, and we're gonna have this simple prayer for you to pray as you take communion. And it's gonna be on the screen, and this simple prayer is just kind of this acknowledgement. I want you to take some moment of silence and just say the prayer together. It is, Christ has come. Christ has suffered. Christ has risen. Christ is returning. Come, Lord, come. Let's take communion together. I love you, Ethos Church.